sugar? Isn't she something else? Yeah, she sure is. Oh, wait, wait, wait. The coffee may be too hot. It is just right. Don't, don't wake me up. The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Oh, Humphrey, we've got to discuss this publicity ceremony for the start of work on the Channel Tunnel. Ah, yes. The Foreign Office is stalling again. Well, they say the heads of agreement still haven't been finalised. Well, it's about time they were. Mm -hmm. The big occasion, the inauguration of the Great Gates, leg of the Foundation Stone by the Prime Minister, the Right Honourable James Hacker, and this historic link between our two great sovereign democracies. Great coverage. But uh, the FO haven't agreed everything with the French. Yes, well, I've decided the only solution is for me to have a summit meeting with the French president and sort it out myself. <laughs> I had no idea that you were considering such a stimulating approach. Well, I am. Prime Minister, do you believe that you personally are capable of concluding this negotiation with the French? Well, it shouldn't be too difficult. What are the outstanding points at issue? Well, mainly they're concerned with sovereignty. Where do you believe the frontier should be? Frontier? Frontier between Britain and France. Well, what's wrong with wherever it is now? Three-mile <laughs> limit. Who would own the middle of the tunnel? Um, you see, the British position is that we should own half each. Yeah, that seems fair. Yes, well, the only thing is the French don't think it's fair. They want the frontier to be at Dover. Oh, that's ridiculous. And uh, who would have sovereignty over the trains? Uh, you see, if a crime was committed on a French train in the British sector, who would have jurisdiction, the British or the French? Well, the British. Well, no, the French. No, the British. <laughs> and um, if a body was pushed out of a British train in the French sector, who would have jurisdiction? Well, the French. Um, no, the British. Um, <laughs> you see, if a British lorry was loaded onto a French train in the British sector, who would have jurisdiction? Well, the British lorry. The, the British. Or the French. <laughs> Could uh, criminal jurisdiction be divided into two legs, home and away? <laughs> yes, thank you, Bernard. Should we have a frontier post? In the middle of the tunnel? Well, yeah. Uh, Halfway no. across? No? No. Or should we have customs and immigration clearance at one end or the other? Or both ends? Now, with respect, Humphrey, these are points for the lawyers to discuss at the negotiations. Precisely, Prime Minister. But I thought I heard you say you wanted to handle it yourself. Well, obviously, I don't want to discuss points of abstruse international law. Mm -hmm. I want to get the political point settled. Ah, so sovereignty is not political, I see. How interesting. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June 30th, 2016. I'm Bob Matt. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright As you may already have guessed from our show opener today, taken from the classic British TV series Yes, Prime Minister, Brexit is on the top of this week's agenda, and I'll be tossing that hot potato over to Robert momentarily. In the second half of our presentation today, we'll be taking on another hot issue, if you haven't heard yet, the Prince of Pot, who was a guest on this show on May 5th, has been making news in Toronto 
following a series of police raids on operating cannabis dispensaries in the city. We'll be looking at that in the second half of the show. But before we get underway, don't forget that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 on shortwave, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Robert? Well, Bob, Brexit was the topic of last week. Still uh, is. <laughs> yeah. Did you, uh, did you watch the um, results come in? No, I, I was too tired to stay up that night, but I know <laughs> so many of my friends stayed up all night long, yeah. like right through to the night. Yeah, I, I, I stayed up until the result was, uh, was announced, but I have to admit I was very happy at the outcome of the British referendum on whether to remain in Europe, the European Union or to leave. And quite frankly, I was very much surprised. Um, even when some of the polls suggested that the outcome favored leave, I truly believed that there would have um, been enough voter fraud, violence, or shenanigans on behalf of the Remain side to throw the vote away. Now, not unlike uh, the massive voter fraud we saw during the 1995 referendum in Quebec, perpetrated by the separatists, who, I must point out, are philosophically more on the left than were the no voters. But that doesn't appear to be the case. If there were any fraud in the Leave vote, or the Remain vote, um, the Leave vote was obviously too powerful for it to have been effective. And I bet you there was there was fraud. That, that is the tactic of the left, is to cheat, is to um, create violence, is to disrupt a democratic process. But it, if there was any, it didn't work, and I'm very happy about that. Maybe it was because they were British. <laughs> and, I don't know. Was there any truth to the fact that the Queen weighed in on this? Oh, yes. Well, she apparently, uh, just before, she had asked a question of dinner guests, um, give me three good reasons why we should remain in the European Union. That question alone sort of tilted, uh, tint, uh, uh, gave away her hand that she didn't believe that uh, we should remain. But uh, well, it was a whether tough it, question to answer. So I, when I heard that she had done that, I said, ooh, that could sway a lot of people. I think it may have made a difference. But, you know, I think what uh, some of the pundits were saying that when Obama actually walked into the fray of foreign internal uh, politics, which he should not have done, no, no other foreign um, leader should really say yay or nay on, a, on an internal referendum on another country. But when he came in and said he hoped that they uh, stayed in the European Union, I think that, as mo many pundits did, that it swayed a lot of votes to leave. Mm -hmm. it, it, overall, though, I think it was a victory for democracy, national sovereignty, and individualism over dictatorial bureaucracy, socialism, and the creeping internationalism, or the one-world state envisioned by communists, which I think the European Union is a part of. A bit of history, though, is in order to put, uh, I think, the vote into a broader perspective. The political history of Europe has been one, obviously, of bloodshed, war, violence, and ever-changing borders for thousands of years. Although, if you examine any particular large city, like London, Paris, Rome, or Athens, and consider their longevity as political entities, the borders of the nations, they, states that they reside in, have fluctuated wildly over the years. So even though there's a long, long history um, of cities and population and civilization, nations have changed considerably. Germany, as it is today, is a relatively young nation, younger than Canada. Mm -hmm. Now, the European Union 
began only a few years ago, ostensibly as a way to end the, the fighting and the upheaval, which came to a head with the most recent two world wars and the division of the continent into two dominant philosophies, the collectivist and socialist East, under the rule of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, and the essentially free-market individualistic West, protected by NATO, of course, in the United States. Now, with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 and the diminishing military influence of NATO in the United States, the European Union proper was created in 1993 as a continuation of various trade agreements and communities dating back to as early as 1951. As a young political entity, it really uh, should come as no surprise to have some member states join or leave as the fragile alliance is still being formed. And yet on June 23rd, many of us were genuinely surprised to see that the majority of British subjects voted to leave the Union. We should remember that the individual British subjects never did have a proper say into the Union of the UK with the other member states of the EU. There was a referendum in 1975, but that referendum was to simply remain a member of the EEC, the European Economic Community, which they were allowed to join in 1973. That membership in the EEC is another aspect of history we should keep in mind. Prior to 73, the UK twice applied to be admitted to the EEC, but their application was actually rejected by a veto from France. In other words, the EEC, the precursor to the EU, has demonstrated in the past that they really didn't want the UK admitted to the Union to begin with. If the remaining members say that they're sad to see Britain go, I think they're crying crocodile tears. I suspect there are many EU states quite happy to see Britain leave. Why? Because Britain has a much longer and stronger history of being a country which values individualism over collectivism than any of the other member states. Despite the dues it brings in to the pig trough, it's a constant philosophical sword in their side, like Nigel Farage constantly haranguing them at every opportunity. Its laws are fundamentally different than those of most European countries, having over 800 years of developed common law as compared to the more recent French Napoleonic Code adopted, by the way, by not just France, but by many EU member states. That is not to say a history of national pride, individualism, or a complete uh, different legal system is the reason Brits voted in favor of leaving. I believe it's a reason many in the EU don't mind, really, if the Brits leave. The idea of a European Union is not necessarily a bad one, by the way. It's a desirable thing on the whole for people of common interest to reduce trade barriers and mobility barriers. It has worked for Canada when the various colonies, provinces, and Newfoundland joined together in a federation. It has worked for the states of the United States, and it's worked for many of the other larger countries in the world. It rarely works for political entities which practice collectivist philosophies. Any large collectivist state must keep its members in check by force, as in China or in the old Soviet Union. But in Canada and the United States, it's generally a voluntary thing. We, we didn't come in through violence. Now, the European Union is a political entity which could, in theory, work if it were not for two fundamental flaws. The predominant philosophy of collectivism, which has choked the economy of the EU in endless piles of red tape and regulations, and a porous perimeter, 
which has led to an influx of millions of refugees and welfare shoppers from neighboring states and from states whose citizens do not share the same political values of many Europeans, especially um, Western Europeans. I speak, of course, of the Islamic states like Syria, Turkey, Morocco, Iraq, Pakistan. Without the influx of these people in the numbers we're seeing, many political analysts have suggested that Britain would not have voted to leave the Union. Quite possible. Creeping Sharia, collectivism, socialism, a bloated bureaucracy, cronyism, crippling trade barriers in the form of massive regulations, bizarre anti-industrial efforts in the guise of saving the planet from the non-existent anthropogenic global warming, and deep-seated mistrust of old enemies came together on June 23rd for the long-term benefit, I think, of Britain. In the days ahead as negotiations begin for the severing of the political bonds between Britain and the EU, I predict acrimonious grandstanding on the part of the EU and its various bureaucracies, which would lead to a deliberate undermining of the economy of the UK. Remember that the philosophy driving the EU, socialism, is the same ideology responsible for the deaths of hundreds of millions in the past hundred years throughout the world. So I would not put it past these thugs to try to throw Britain under the bus as they try to prevent further defections from their ranks. Now what follows is a clip of a speech given by UKIP leader and British member of the European Parliament, Nigel Farage. Listen to the catcalls, the boos, and the childish taunts from the non-British members of the so-called Parliament. Listen to the EU Parliamentary President Martin Schulz try to keep order, but at the same time not resisting taunting Farage. But most importantly, listen to the very eloquent Nigel Farage correctly characterize the chamber of cronies and plead for some semblance of maturity in the days ahead. Good morning. Good morning. Funny, isn't it? Funny, isn't it? Thank you very much for that. Very warm welcome. Um, How things have changed. Just a second, Mr. Farage. Ladies and gentlemen, one major quality of democracy is that you listen to those, even if you don't share their opinion. Well, thank you, Mr. Schultz. Isn't it funny? You know, when I came here 17 years ago, and I said that I wanted to lead a campaign to get Britain to leave the European Union, you all laughed at me. Well, I have to say, you're not laughing now, are you? And the reason you're so upset, the reason you're so angry, has been perfectly clear from all the angry exchanges this morning. You, as a political project, are in denial. You're in denial that your currency is failing. You're in denial. Well, just, well, just look at the Mediterranean. No, no, no. As a, as a policy to impose poverty on Greece and the rest of the Mediterranean, you've done very well. And you're in denial over Mrs. Merkel, Mrs. Merkel's call last year for as many, any people as possible to cross the Mediterranean into the European Union has led to massive divisions between countries and within countries. But the biggest problem you've got, and the reason, the main reason 
the United Kingdom voted the way that it did is you have, by stealth, by deception, without ever telling the truth to the British or the rest of the peoples of Europe, you have imposed upon them a political union. You've imposed upon them a political union. And when the people in 2005 in the Netherlands and France voted against that political union, when they rejected the Constitution, you simply ignored them and brought the Lisbon Treaty in through the back door. What happened? What happened last Thursday was a remarkable result. It was indeed a seismic result, not just for British politics, for European politics, but perhaps even for global politics too. Because what the little people did, what the ordinary people did, what the people who, who have been oppressed over the last few years and seen their living standards go down, they rejected the multinationals, they rejected the merchant banks, they rejected big politics, and they said, actually, we want our country back, we want our fishing waters back, we want our borders back, we want to be an independent, self-governing, normal nation, and that is what we have done, and that is what must happen. And in doing so, and in doing so, we now offer a beacon of hope to Democrats across the rest of the European continent. I'll make one prediction this morning. The United Kingdom will not be the last member state to leave the European Union. So the question, the question is, what do we do next? Now, it is up to the British government to invoke Article 50. And I have to say that I don't think we should spend too long in doing it. I totally agree, uh, Mr Juncker, that the British people have voted. We need to make sure that it happens. But what I would like to see is a grown-up and sensible attitude to how we negotiate a different relationship. Now, now I know... I know that virtually none of you have ever done a proper job in your lives <laughs> or, worked, or worked in business or worked in trade or indeed ever created a job. But listen, just listen. Herr Farage, Augenblick. Mr. Farage, just a second. Ladies and gentlemen, I do understand that you're getting emotional, but you're acting like UKIP normally acts in this chamber, so please. Don't, don't imitate them. Mr. Farage, however, I would say one thing to you. The fact that you're claiming nobody has done uh, a decent job in their life, you can't really say that. I'm sorry. Now, you're quite, uh, you're quite right, Mr. Schultz. UKIP used to protest against the establishment, and now the establishment protests against UKIP. So something has happened here. Let us listen to some simple, pragmatic economics. We, between us... Between your countries and my country, we do an enormous amount of business in goods and services. That trade is mutually beneficial to both of us. That trade matters. If you were to decide to cut off your noses, to spite your faces, and to reject any idea 
of a sensible trade deal, the consequences would be far worse for you than it would be for us. And I, even, even no deal is better for the United Kingdom than the current rotten deal that we've got. But if we were to move to a position where tariffs were reintroduced on products like motor cars, then hundreds of thousands of German workers would risk losing their jobs. So why don't we just be pragmatic, sensible, grown-up, realistic, and let's cut between us, let's cut between us a sensible tariff-free deal and thereafter, and thereafter recognise that the United Kingdom will be your friend, that we will trade with you, we will cooperate with you, we will be your best friends in the world. But do that, do it sensibly, and allow us to go off and pursue our global ambitions and future. Thank you. It appears that Britain has voted to leave the EU just in the nick of time, as Express reported the following this week. Quote, the foreign ministers of France and Germany are due to reveal a blueprint to effectively do away with individual member states in what is being described as an ultimatum. Under the radical proposals, EU countries will lose the right to have their own army, criminal law, taxation system, or central bank, with all those powers being transferred to Brussels. Controversially, member states would also lose what few controls they have left over their own borders, including the procedure for admitting and relocating refugees, unquote. You can find that full article at express.co.uk. Now, what permits Britain to leave the EU is, in fact, that they, like the other members, have their own army and can defend the will of their citizens expressed in the referendum. A European superstate, as it's being called, would preclude any further defections from the Union. Just as disarmed citizens cannot protect themselves from thugs, disarmed states cannot protect themselves from a tyrannical dictator. European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker is also keen uh, to accelerate European integration by making eight remaining nations use the euro. Those nations are Bulgaria, Croatia, Czech, uh, Denmark, Hungary, Poland, Romania, and Sweden. Now, one of the factors which will facilitate Britain's (laughs) extrication from the EU is that it never adopted the euro. So now we see plans afoot to remove individual nation-states' armies and their currencies as a means to prevent further defections. Christopher Monckton, who, by the way, has been a past guest on this program, expressed his views on Brexit in a piece published in What's up with that.com? Quote, For my final broadcast of the nation on the eve of Britain's Independence Day, the BBC asked me to imagine myself as one of the courtiers to whom Her Majesty had recently asked the question. In one minute, give three reasons for your opinion on whether my kingdom should remain in or leave the European Union. My three reasons for departure in strict order of precedence were democracy, democracy, and democracy. For the so-called European Parliament is no Parliament. It is a mere Duma. It lacks even the power to bring forward a bill. And the 28 faceless, unelected, omnipotent commissars, the official German name for the shadowy 
commissioners who exercise the supreme lawmaking power that was once vested in our elected parliament have the power under the Treaty of Maastricht to meet behind closed doors to override in secret any decision of that, quote, parliament at will and even to dis- to issue commission regulations that bypass it altogether. Worse, the treaty that established the European Stability Pact gives its governing body of absolute bankers the power at will and without consultation to demand any sum of money, however large, from any member state and every member of that governing body, personally as well as collectively, is held entirely immune not only from any civil suit but also from any criminal prosecution. That is dictatorship in the formal sense. Good riddance to it. The people have spoken, and the democratic spirit that inspired just over half the people of Britain to vote for national independence has its roots in the passionate devotion of the founding fathers of the United States to democracy. Our former colony showed us the way. Today, then, and even more heartfelt than usual, God bless America. Moncton's argument is correct. The undemocratic nature of the EU governing body is sufficient enough reason for any member state to leave that union. But before the EU repairs itself, it must not only allow for a democratic and open government, but a government whose powers are limited, just as they are in Canada and the United States. Nigel Farage spoke of more countries inclined to leave the Union, perhaps even prompting a collapse of that organization. But I would suggest that the EU has already collapsed. It is a, it's suffering a collapse of the mind. Tyranny cannot last. A philosophy of being your brother's keeper cannot last. Socialism cannot last. Don't expect a collapse to resemble bombed-out buildings, millions of starving refugees, bread lines, and hyperinflation. Those are manifestations of a society which had collapsed long before. Germany began its collapse with the adoption of National Socialism. The European Union began its collapse by trying to rid itself of the nationalism of Nazi Germany. But while, they, but while what it really should have rid itself of was the socialism of the Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Party. It isn't nationalism which the Europeans should fear. It's socialism. The EU has collapsed, but Britain may have left just in time to save itself from the ensuing fallout. Now, the French want the science to be in French first and English second. No, I won't agree to that. Well, you can't have your ceremony until you do. Well, how about French first at the French end and English first at the English end? Uh, what about on the trains? Oh, really, Humphrey, does it matter? Well, it matters to the French. What about the menus, French or English? Well, couldn't they be changed halfway over? Uh, the French are adamant. You see, that is why both the British and French Concord are spelt the French way with an E at the end. Don't we ever get our own way with the French? Well, sometimes. When was the last time? Battle of Waterloo, 1815. <laughs> and, of course, the French may raise the vexed question of hijacking. Hijacking? Now, what if terrorists were to hijack... The train, and threaten to blow up the train and the tunnel. Well, let's give the French jurisdiction over the whole lot. That way it's their problem. <laughs> if you had been handling the negotiations, you would have just handed everything over to the French. But I personally believe that the French will come up with some totally underhand ploy to gain the advantage. But 
No doubt you've already anticipated that, Prime Minister. Yeah, on second thoughts, I don't think it's necessary for me to conduct these negotiations personally. <laughs> if humiliating concessions are going to have to be made, I'd rather the Foreign Secretary made them. Very wise, Prime Minister. Let's have a glass of sherry, Bernard. Twenty-three people are facing charges tonight. Now, this is following Thursday's police raids at four Toronto pot shops. Well, now, just a day later, two of those stores, they're back open. Mark Harkersoul is outside one of them. So, Mark, why is it back open already? Well, Farah, quite simply, this is an act of protest by Mark Emery, uh, who co-founded uh, locations like this cannabis culture here on Queen Street, west of Bathurst. They're telling authorities that, quite simply, they don't agree with marijuana laws as they stand. They do not agree with marijuana laws as they will be once the federal government reforms them. And they say that the only way to make these laws the way they want them, to have marijuana distributed the way they want it distributed, is just to go ahead and do it. Doors wide open again at Cannabis Culture on Queen West, one of four marijuana dispensaries raided by police. We are not going to back down easily. They were warned by police last week, but they didn't and still don't care. Cannabis Culture co-founder Mark Emery, crowned Canada's Prince of Pot, says it's an act of defiance against an unfair system. Anybody who loves marijuana and has a passion for it should be able to grow it, sell it and consume it and without any kind of exclusion. I mean, we don't harm anybody. Uh, none, nothing we sell creates problems. Post-raid specials. As Emery helped man the counter inside, a steady stream of customers came through to buy products, offer support. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Good luck, eh? And... First one of the day. Enjoy that product. Licensed dispensaries require patients to have a medical prescription for weed and to have it delivered by mail or courier. Critics say it's a format fraught with problems. David says he uses medical marijuana for chronic pain and has seen those problems personally. Well, the licensed producer system doesn't seem to realize that if they run out of the strain that you're using for your um, ailment and it's gone for six weeks, what are you supposed to do? Your hands are tied, you can't go to the next shopper's drug mart, they don't have it. So you're stuck to go to a place like this or a local dealer. These are the rules that we were given to play with. These are the rules that we were given to enforce. Police say they enforce the current laws based on public complaints and that they received enough about locations like this one to justify their actions. But activists don't believe there's actually that large an outcry. And they don't plan on going away. We will continue to work with uh, municipal licensing and standards from the city uh, to enforce these. So more raids are possible. It's, it's very possible. I'm willing to go to jail and I will be selling marijuana today and all next week I'll be here. Now, Farah, Toronto Police couldn't tell us exactly how many complaints they had received about dispensaries like this one and the others raided yesterday, although they say that the complaints were numerous. The head of the local BIA actually, though, says if there were any complaints in this area, it wasn't from other businesses. Uh, in fact, cannabis culture is a part of the local BIA, the West Queen West BIA, and the president says that they are actually a very strong contributing member of the BIA. He's got no complaints about cannabis culture whatsoever. Back to you. Okay, Mark Arkersol, Queen in Bathurst, thank you. Tonight, Canada's so-called Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, is responding to some of the common complaints about marijuana. It's a drug, and if people use it in excess, 
they are not responsible for their actions, right? So you have to have some control. The people who still want to stigmatize us and still have prejudice against us, they want to control everything. And that's unacceptable to us because they've been hating on us for 50 years and this prohibition has been terrible for us and it's the same people who had prohibition for 50 years who now are in charge of legalization. So we're not buying it. We see what it is. It's a way to control us even worse than before. All the dispensaries currently um, are operating illegally and that it makes sense for the government to crack down on them. I'd rather see it being fully taxed and being fully controlled and that money go just like how the LCBO uses that money, you know, goes to schools, goes to, you know, research and everything like that. Um, it makes more sense that way. What are you talking about? There's no licenses available to people who sell marijuana. There's no special marijuana retailer license. In a free society, there would be, but there isn't. So everybody opens a dispensary with no license because they're not available. Where I'm from, we didn't have too many other hard drugs. It was people just used marijuana. We had problems with that, and then the hard drugs came after. So let's nip it in the bud. Let's, if we can avoid any of it, let's do that. It's funny the myths that are out there, the myths that pot's addictive. I went to prison and I stopped smoking pot and I never felt anything as a consequence of that for four and a half years. Uh, pot's not addictive, pot's not going to hurt you, uh, pot's a gateway to what? Uh, half the population is going to smoke pot in their lifetime. Are they all going to do heroin? That's an idiotic argument. It does, it's, I, shouldn't even, I shouldn't even dignify it by answering it. I mean, it's just absurd on the face of it. Absurd on the face of it, I agree. But Robert, absurdity has a cause, and I think it's a rationalization to arrive at some predetermined objective or desired outcome, and it sure wasn't freedom. Talk about that in a minute. But Mark Emery, of course, the Prince of Pot, recently appeared with us in studio here on May 5th, along with fellow anti-prohibitionist Christopher Goodwin, who was to appear in court the day following our broadcast. Briefly, Chris did not end up going to jail. Most of the charges against him were dropped. He was fined and put on a brief probation for another charge, and while staying away from his place of business for a few months as a condition of his probation, his wife Erin Goodwin was arrested a week ago today on charges of, quote, trafficking in cannabis, and we'll hear an audio bite from her a little later in the show. Chris and Aaron Goodwin have appeared twice before on Just Right in studio, and you can check those out, their episodes number 296 and 202. But let's review a few of the points raised by the two people we just heard on the control side of the pot issue. Mark gave excellent responses to their arguments, but I'm going to make my own observations on a slightly different level and from a different perspective. Now, the first woman said it's a drug, and if people use it to excess, they're not responsible for their actions, quote-unquote. Well, that's certainly true if you're talking about alcohol, but I haven't seen and, and seen the cause and effect with regard to cannabis use. When pot users generally are in a state of excess, they are almost too paranoid to get behind the wheel of a car to drive. At least they know they're in that state, unlike a drunk who feels exactly the opposite way. He'll get because he feels overconfident. So she says you have to have some controls. Well, we always have laws that control behavior, so that never changes. And when governments institute the kind of control she's talking about, it controls the marketplace for itself, never the drug. Now, the second fellow that they talked to in that global clip was, uh, you know, he says dispensaries currently are operating illegally. It makes sense for the government to crack down to them. I'd like to see them fully taxed and fully controlled, he says. Use the money just like the LCBO. It goes to schools, research, and makes more sense that way. Well, 
that comment was quite offensive. His argument wasn't really about pot or cannabis at all. It was about his outlook on state control and wealth redistribution. He probably voted for Kathleen Wynne's plans to force electricity use on everybody in Ontario, too. And then again, back to the first woman, she explained how where she's from, which certainly sounded like it was from the Caribbean. People only smoke pot, and they had problems with that. And then the hard drugs came after. And she says, if we can avoid any of it, let's do that. To which I had to say, do what? Her account of the hard drug experience has all the earmarks of a drug cartel or a monopolized illegal trade environment. That's where the problem starts, the quote-unquote problem, which was prohibition. Now, I'm going to make an assertion that some might find a little inappropriate or offensive, though it's not meant to be such in the sense of addressing the personalities or characters of those people we just heard from that global television news clip. These people, each of the people you just heard, are expressing what, is, what we call, would call the philosophy of fascism. That is what fascism sounds like. Not particularly scary in the sense of how it's been portrayed in, in, in historical and fictional accounts, if you compared it to that, where its eventual and extreme outcomes are self-evident. Because a socialist or communist, unlike a fascist, would demand that the state both own and control the quote-unquote the means of production, which is what the liberals, both federally and provincially, wish to do on the pot issue. While the sole and only distinction between that and taking the fascist approach is that the fascists dispense with the necessity of the state having to actually own what it, it is controlling, taxing, and regulating. After all, once you control, tax, and regulate something, you pretty much do own it. Uh, by the way, the liberals want to do that too. <laughs> Just look at the disgraceful attitude of the Ontario Liberal government's view on allowing a few selected retailers to have beer and wine sold in their stores. Under totally monopoly control by the government, they're licensed by the state monopoly, and that's what fascists call legalizing beer and wine in stores. All variants of collectivism, fascism, socialism, communism are ideologies of the left. The left is about collectivism, and collectivism is about the use of political force to eventually prevent individualism. Yes, these are broad brush strokes of philosophy, but yet they apply. I've always contended uh, that fascism is somehow, is maybe how most human beings are politically oriented when they're born into this world. It's an immaturity derived from the need and lack of knowledge necessary to satisfy that need without imposing upon another individual. As babies and very young children, we have all these tendencies. But as we gain knowledge and experience, we become more independent and seek to realize and actualize our individualism. The social order of collectivism is maintained by force. The social order under individualism is maintained by consent. Freedom and capitalism represent the actualization of a mature and rational view of politics. Perhaps to some extent, that pragmatic approach to cooperative politics and mutually beneficial economic trade was similar to that mentioned by Nigel Farage in Brussels on Tuesday or that pragmatic approach as opposed to the ideological that Salim Mansour refers to when he joins us on the show. Pragmatism, on the other hand, as a philosophy, would never result in either freedom or capitalism. So to become freedom-oriented in one's consistent and principled way of thinking, which is what Mark Emery was doing there, requires learning, knowledge, and some effort to understand. That effort requires proper conceptualization. After that, the concepts themselves take care of most of the hard thinking about an issue. 
But concepts are mathematical representations. A five cannot be a five for one person and a two for another. Hence my warnings about distinctions between capitalism and cronyism. Um, each of the people who were interviewed by Global News on the pot issue, I would say, were non-thinkers, something we talk about a lot on the show. They didn't think about whether what they were saying about their assumptions on, around cannabis was even true. Really? A gateway drug? More like a gateway to prohibition, if that idea took root. They didn't think about the consequences on the victims, the gateway to their jail cells, which is kept locked. But here's the real scary part. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're not immature. Maybe they did think about it, and that was their thought-through conclusion. Fascism and control all the way. Crony politics. Arrests based on anonymous complaints. Punish people who disagree with, uh, with me. Jail them, imprison them, fine them, tax them, control them. If so, then I have to apply another label to them. And this brings me to a very disturbing part of the whole issue, and that is the complaint system. The reason that Mark and the other uh, cannabis outlets were raided was because of apparent complaints. And, you know, complainants bring a lot of their emotional baggage with them. Uh, you know, represent here, we heard a witness who, who uh, remembered the complaint system that I went through with, with Elijah Elioth and for the Human Rights Commission. And we actually had to listen to uh, witnesses from British Columbia here in London, Ontario, to hear about their experiences in Asia and British Columbia as though it had something to do with what was going on here in London. Complaint system, that's how our show got kicked off of CHRW. Uh, a lone complainant remained forever anonymous, as well as the explicit complaint remaining anonymous. So, I have our complaint. Let's stop using the complaint system of justice and return to real principles of justice. False accusers must be held accountable for their actions. Now, I don't believe either the police in these raids or management at CHRW or even with the case of, of Elijah Elioth and the, and the situation before the Human Rights Commission were actually legitimate complainants, nor were the complaints. Whatever they might have been in all of the cases I've seen, uh, I've not seen, mind you, and not been permitted to use. In the case of the Toronto police, they say they conducted the raids based on complaints. But to my way of thinking, that would clearly imply that there were no complaints lodged. The police, if there were no complaints lodged, rather, the police would not have taken any action. That in turn would imply, to my way of thinking, that the complaints and their source are of paramount importance with regard to any arrest police might make with retailers of cannabis. And that again would imply, to my way of thinking, that the identity of the complainants should and must be revealed, as must the motivation and the nature of their complaints be made public. After all, we're talking about arresting peaceful, consenting individuals because of another person's opinion. We're talking about putting people in jail. I find the very thought of such a thing as being so morally reprehensible that it just boggles my mind that, our, that there are people around who don't particularly see anything wrong with that. Scary stuff. I'm here to defend the integrity of our brand and what we're doing here. This is how legalization should look like. Any other version is not legalization. And both the City of Toronto Police Department and the federal government are telling us that this won't be permitted 
in the uh, legal regime and I'm here to say that we are determined to make it a reality and that I'm willing to go to jail and I will be selling marijuana today and all next week I'll be here and uh, we hope to stay open as long as possible. We can't do the impossible um, and eventually the landlord or other agencies might intervene and force us out of business but until then we're going to keep trying and we'll look for additional locations as well to open additional cannabis culture retail facilities because the people want it. Hundreds of thousands of Torontonians want to shop at these shops and I think they're voting with their feet and their dollars and we intend to support them and as long as we have true believers who are willing to go to jail for our cause, uh, as I am, then uh, we will continue to open and defy the punishment uh, that the City of Toronto and under the federal government is giving us. Uh, we aren't harming anybody. Nothing here is harmful. We don't hurt anybody. The public wants us. The citizens want us. We don't get any complaints from people. And so we plan to continue to open as often as possible whenever we get arrested. Why not just wait till it is legalized? That's a lot of people will, will ask you that. Because when it's legalized, according to the federal government, it won't look like this. It'll look like uh, crony capitalism, uh, the government's friends in powerful positions and stockbroker companies, uh, or rather companies that are financed by investors from abroad, will get uh, the lion's share of the marketplace. And we don't think that's right. We think the people who love marijuana should be selling marijuana. We think the people who love marijuana should be growing it, along with the people who love marijuana consuming it. And we don't intend to let the federal government usurp our industry. The Canadian public voted to legalize marijuana, not steal our industry from hundreds of thousands of Canadians who've made it what it is today. And so we are here to oppose the whole idea that the government has a right to determine who can sell marijuana, who can grow marijuana, who can consume it. We don't accept any of that. We believe anybody who loves the plant should be involved with the plant and that what we're looking for is not the government to take over our industry but to legalize what we are already doing. That's what the voters wanted, that's what we want. Everyone in this country who smokes marijuana, consumes marijuana, sells marijuana believes in the vision that I have. They don't believe in the vision that the City of Toronto has or that the federal government has and therefore after 45 years of our struggle and myself going to jail on 34 different occasions for this cause, we are not going to back down easily. This is the Jeff MacArthur Show on Talk Radio AM 640. Erin Goodwin, she is uh, one of the co-owners along with her husband of uh, Good Weeds. Uh, they were raided uh, last week. Erin, uh, uh, good afternoon. Uh, I know you're also with the Cannabis uh, Culture. Do I have this right that uh, you were actually arrested? Did you spend some time in jail late last week? I did. So I'm uh, the manager of Cannabis Culture. I used to own Good Weeds Lounge up on the Danforth. And on uh, Thursday at 801 Queen Street West, uh, cannabis culture was raided around 1 p.m., and myself, as well as two other uh, co-workers, were taken into custody, and I was held overnight till bail court the next morning. All right. What did police tell you when they came into your premises? Uh, well, I was in handcuffs before I knew it, uh, and they showed me the search warrant, uh, told me we were arrested for uh, possession for the purpose of trafficking marijuana. All right. And, and your uh, response to that was? Uh, well, I, I was aware I was breaking the law and was prepared to uh, accept the consequence of that. I was concerned about my customers to make sure that they weren't going to be held or 
no serious offense to them. And uh, one of the employees actually was just on a trial shift. It was her first shift, and she had only been there for a half hour. She hadn't touched product at all. I was trying to convince them they should let her go, but they did hold her till about one thirty in the morning and let her go on her own recognizance. All right. You just heard Councillor Jim Carey of Janice on the line with us. He's called all of these raids a knee-jerk reaction and a waste mm-hmm. of uh, taxpayer money. Uh, I'm guessing you feel similar. Uh, I definitely agree. I've been in the cannabis industry for almost a decade, and I just see the future and all the possibility that I've been a vapor lounge owner, and I believe that people deserve safe, comfortable places to socialize without having to consume alcohol, and these spaces are needed. And in Colorado and Washington, where they've already gone full legal, they don't have these safe places for cannabis users, and I think they're detrimental to legalization here in Canada. We've already had them through the Stephen Harper regime, and and, uh, our community won't, won't accept anything less. All right, but let me ask you, and we debated this several weeks ago when Project Claudia went down, and, I mean, you just admitted on the air that uh, you full well knew that you were breaking the law. Uh, Do you blame the police for doing their job, and why jump the gun? Why not uh, wait until due process is finished and marijuana is legalized? Uh, Well, like, they're trying to restrict access in this upcoming legalization. And Mark Emery said it best in the news this week where he said, anyone with a passion for cannabis deserves... Uh, the chance to be involved in this new industry. And so if I could have access into the... Like when this first LP program first started years ago, we were interviewing a lot of the the people involved and there was concern in questioning them that they were getting a head start into the legalization model and it wasn't fair that they were going to try and block people out in the future. They swore up and down that that wouldn't be the case. So I don't think it's all LPs that are against dispensaries. I think a lot of them would be willing to work with us. All right, and as we uh, mentioned just a moment ago, uh, city uh, the city has uh, deferred debate on this until October. Uh, where do you stand uh, legally, and I guess, you know, just as a, a person, uh, what happens to you moving forward? Well, I'm, I'm prepared to stand with it and stand strong. I'm determined. A lot of people would, would say I should lay low or I should get a different type of job that doesn't put me in the spotlight, but I'm, uh, I'm not going to back down. I'm proud of who I am. I'm a proud cannabis user every day, and I'm extremely hardworking, and I want to I show that other people shouldn't be hiding in the cannabis closet, that we should come out of it, and uh, I compared it to the gay rights movement. Mark's talked about how there's the women's right to vote and uh, abortion laws, all kinds of things. We've had to fight unjust laws by breaking them. All right. And are you at all uh, disappointed, I guess might be the word, that uh, the city has uh, deferred debate on this till October, that they need further study and that we're probably uh, a year away from the federal government moving on this? Well, every day we're getting closer and closer, so I'm just looking forward to it. Uh, um, you know, we're much, we're much further, we're much closer to it than we were a year ago. And um, I'm hoping that we, as the community who's been most experienced in it, we can have a voice in the way it's shaped. All right, Aaron, I appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Uh, we'll watch this as it uh, continues with interest. Thank you so much. Wow. Now that was an excellent and principled positioning by all participants on the current cannabis issue and debate. It is clear that pot, in addition to being a federal issue, will now also be very much a provincial issue that will undoubtedly be raised in the next Ontario provincial election. You know, it's deja vu all over again. The complaint system, as argued by Mark Emery, could have been lifted from his Sunday shopping arguments of the 1980s when competing retailers complained, quote-unquote, about his City Lights bookstore being open on Sundays. 
in Ontario. In, in the Sunday shopping case, the complainants were, of course, non-shoppers and stores that didn't want to open on Sunday, neither of whose rights were being interfered with in any way when Mark Emery opened his store on a Sunday. Sound, sound familiar? <laughs> now, Mark went to jail for that offense as well. Although by the time he was tossed in jail for Sunday retailing, his technical offense was to have too many people working on a Sunday. I think the limit was two at the time, so Mark uh, had two employees work one Sunday and then showed up himself as the third and illegal worker in the store. (laughs) Then he calls the police to come and arrest him, which they did, and he ended up in the notorious Middlesex Detention Center here in London, Ontario, until I bailed him out with cash raised from a pennies for principles jar that his customers filled up in his store while he was sitting in jail. So it's very funny how the leftists, you know, which was the NDP government at the time, all rushed in to limit trade on Sundays, from passing ridiculous laws prohibiting how many people could work in the store at one time to regulating pay and hours worked and how many square feet. Remember, remember how many square feet you could have? If you had a larger store, you had to section off parts of your store. Literally, you could see the barriers. They, they weren't, they weren't uh, just figurative anymore. <laughs> you could see what they were all about. So... You know, I remember when Peter Tosh, the the reggae singer, had a hit reggae tune called Legalize It. And while I sympathize with the general objective associated with that refrain, I'm of a second mind when it comes to legalizing just about anything, Robert. I don't know. <laughs> that word doesn't mean what it means anymore, certainly not in the hands of the left. I think we should never advocate legalizing anything. I think it's a sick idea, which is why I lightheartedly like to call it Illegalization. Two words. <laughs> Illegalization. Legalization implies that everything that isn't legalized is illegal until it's legalized, right? It's like the Napoleonic Code applied to daily behavior. You're guilty of anything and everything until you get specific permissions and licenses from people who have no business being in business, uh, who give you their unjustifiable permissions of authority. For me, the whole pot issue is a microcosm of all crony politics, which is sheer corruption of freedom and of free trade and free of coercion markets, markets that should be free of coercion. That's what we mean when we say free trade. And at its source, the the source being the governments willing to kiss the asses of all the crony criminals, who I consider to be anyone willing to violate the right to life, liberty, and or property of another individual. Now, Mark Emery referred to crony capitalism, and again, I get what he's getting at, but I would like to make a distinction. Yes, there are crony capitalists, and there are crony politicians, but there's no such thing as crony capitalism, because capitalism politically means a separation of the state and economics. It practically means no crony relationships in the sense of using the power of the law to gain a market advantage over another competitor. In that regard, I found Aaron Goodwin's comment, quote, we're trying to provide a safe environment to socialize without having to use alcohol. We already had them through the Stephen Harper regime, quote, unquote, to be quite significant. It certainly polarizes the federal side of the pot issue in the opposite direction from what it was going into the election. And it echoes Mark Emery's earlier observation that we heard that, quote, We've seen what legalization under Trudeau is. It's a way of controlling us even worse than before. Now, of course, 
as any longtime listeners to this program are aware, that was precisely the fear we ourselves expressed about Trudeau's so-called legalization efforts. But rest assured that Mark Emery and the good ones all were well aware of that outcome before they supported the Liberals in the last election. In fact, Robert, you raised that very point with Mark when he appeared on the show this past May 5th, and his answer certainly provoked some laughter and smiles. Do you remember what he said? Precisely, you don't? <laughs> remember you said uh, something to the effect of, you, you addressed this issue, and he said, now, Robert, you really think that I, that, uh, I think that Trudeau, or no, that politicians oh, yeah. don't lie. Yeah, you're right? surprised that politicians lie or yeah. something to that effect. It was very funny. I thought, yes. I thought it, it got a few smiles. And I also can't help but observe in noting Aaron's comment about trying to provide a safe environment to socialize for cannabis smokers that we are also in a legal environment where that same environment is not permitted to exist for tobacco smokers any longer. Where have we gone? What a messed up and tangled web they have woven. But the good news is that the debate is being forced back onto the essential playing field. As Mark Emery said in our earlier audio bite, quote, we don't intend to let the federal government usurp our industry. People of Canada voted to legalize marijuana, not to steal our industry from hundreds of thousands of Canadians who have made it what it is today. We are here to oppose the whole idea that the government has a right to determine who can sell, grow, or consume pot. Now, that sounds like a capital idea to me. <laughs> Isn't it, though? <laughs> Couldn't resist, Robert. Sorry. But if anyone's interested in hearing more on this, you can certainly tune in to our, our May 5th broadcast with Mark Emery. He was also a guest on the show before that. And you can, of course, tune in to Just Right online at www. Uh, JustRightMedia.org to hear our previous interviews with both Chris and Aaron Goodwin, who were great. So that's about all I've got to say on that this week, Robert. It's a bigger issue. It's like remember when we said Sunday shopping is not just a single issue. It's the same mm. with with the with the uh, the cannabis issue, especially as it is now. Well, the real issue underlying all of these things is individual rights. It's freedom. It always is. And that's the, that is the big issue. That's why we're here every week, and that's why we're going to be here again next week. And we hope you'll join us then when we will, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. sind Juli, der ist ein Hamburger und Simon, der ist ein Frankfurter. Juli, wie geht's? Nein. Simon? Ja. Und jetzt, Round 1, lass uns Number Wang spielen. <lacht> Simon geht zuerst. Zwei. Das ist Number Wang. Acht. Das ist Number Wang. 23. Das ist Number Wang. Round 2, Numberhosen. Kommen Sie her, Simon und Juli. Sehr gut. Juli, Sie haben 12, 13 und 8, aber Simon, Sie haben 2.389.411. Ah, danke, danke. Als wir fangen das letzte Round an, Juli hat 17 und Simon hat ein bisschen mehr mit 16,974. Also, lass uns Wangenom spielen. Rotiere das Brett. 
Jetzt ist die Zeit, Wangen umzuspielen. Bevor wir anfangen, darf ich Ihnen beide sagen, Good luck. Oh, thanks very much. Ach, das habe ich gewusst! Nimm die weg! Juli, Sie sind gewangen! Aber Simon, Sie sind heutiger Wangen! Also, das ist alles für Nummerwang heute. Morgen kommen wir wieder, aber bis dann. Bleib noch mal! Bleib noch mal!